Now, there are some events that make history. And they stand out as being key events in the history of the world. For example, last Sunday in London, thousands gathered in Trafalgar Square to celebrate VE Day. Sixty years ago, the Second World War had come to an end. It was an event that made history. And then there was 1989. Back in the days of Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, Glasnost and Perestroika. 1989. It was the year communism fell in the former Soviet Union. And it was also the year the Berlin Wall fell. This 28 mile concrete barrier was finally demolished. An event that made history. And of course there was 9-11. I'm sure you can remember those awful pictures. Pictures of the Twin Towers crashing to the ground. Ground zero. And many lives that were lost. 9-11. An event that made history. However, there is another event coming. And this event will not only make history, it will end world history as we know it. Now, what is that event? It is the second coming of Jesus Christ, God's Son, to this earth. It will begin like any other day. And it will end like no other day. And how do we know that? Because Jesus told us, and here's what he said. He said, I will come back. Now, apparently, in Washington, D.C., in the, tomb, in the dome of the Capitol building, there is an inscription there's a line from the English poet Tennyson and it reads very simply here's what it says one far off divine event to which the whole creation moves the second coming of Jesus Christ and for the most powerful nation on earth and also for us it is a reminder Jesus Christ is coming back and we find this in the Bible, in John chapter 10. And it tells us that we need to be ready, ready for the second coming of Christ. And so here's a question for us. If Jesus was to come back tonight, would I be ready? In my life, on the 15th of May, 2005, do I have that assurance? Well, let's look together at John chapter 14 and verses 1 to 14. It's on page number 1082 of the Pew Bibles. We're going to focus particularly on the first three verses that we'll read 
all 14 verses here. So John chapter 14 and verses 1 to 14. Jesus is speaking here and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the place to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe in the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So we find here these awesome words, history-changing words. Jesus says, I will come back. But there's something else, and it's this. We find here how we can be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it means looking in three directions. Firstly, we look back. Christ has died. Now, see, we discover why Christ first came. And the reason why he came gave his disciples a troubled heart. Last weekend, Alison, my wife and I, went off to the island of Arran. And it was our first time there. And so we drove down to Saltcoats on the Friday night. And we left Saltcoats very quickly the next morning to get the ferry. Nothing against Saltcoats. Now, the scenery is amazing. Arran is described as Scotland in miniature. Now, you can go around Arran in about one hour by car. And that's what we did. And we looked over at Holy Island. And everything was peaceful. There were no hassles. There was no rush hour traffic. Sounds wonderful. If you look at verse 1 here, we find these disciples did not have that sense of peace. In fact, it was the complete opposite. 
they were anxious. And so here's what Jesus said to them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Question. Why did Jesus say that? And why were they so anxious? Well, the reason is, it's because Jesus, their leader, was about to leave them. If you look at the previous chapter, John chapter 13, and verse 36, if you look at what it says, it says, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Now, imagine for a minute that you are one of these disciples. You had spent the past three years following Jesus. And you saw him spend time with the sick and the rejected. Tremendous compassion. Tremendous love. And you saw things that just could not be explained. See, even the wind and the waves obeyed him. Incredible. However, you have just gone to Jerusalem for the last time. And you hear words that you really don't want to hear. They are devastating. And what are these words? Jesus is going to die. He'll be arrested, he'll be falsely accused, and he'll die. He would die on a cross. And to die on a cross would be a shocking death. But here's the really shocking thing. And it's this. That is why Jesus came. He came to die. You see, there is a massive gulf between us, who are rebels, and a perfect God. And Jesus came to bridge that gulf. And so Jesus would leave them. And that's why they were anxious. Now, today in 2005, it's just the same. Many people live without peace. Even with all our possessions. Our homes, our cars, our caravans, if you're lucky. Our laptops, our palm pilots. Today, many people live in quiet desperation. They have no peace. H.G. Wells, the famous British author, said this about his life. And he was very honest. And here's what he said. The time has come for me to reorganize my life. My peace. I cry out. I cannot adjust my life to secure any fruitful peace. Here I am, at 64, still seeking peace. It is a hopeless dream. He has no peace. However, there is good news, amazing news, and it's this. We find here the antidote to a troubled heart. You see, there is a cure. And it's found in the rest of verse 1. If you look down here, Jesus says, Trust in God. Trust also in me. And notice what he's saying here. He is saying, He is equal with God the Father as the object of faith. So in other words, to trust in God is to trust in Jesus. And it's here we find peace with God. Billy Graham is a world famous evangelist. And he wrote a book called Peace with God. This is what he writes about our search or our quest for peace. Here's what he says. You started on the great quest 
the moment you were born. It was many years perhaps before you realised it, before it became apparent that you were constantly searching, searching for something you never had, searching for something that was more important than anything in life. And he continues, at moments you have always been able to dismiss the quest completely, but always you have been caught up in it again, always you have had to come back to your search. And that quest is for God. Now, when someone finds peace with God, it's not a temporary peace. It's not like the peace I found on Aaron. You see, it would just have to start raining on Aaron, and it wouldn't be so wonderful. And it did start raining on Aaron, many times. No, it's an eternal peace with the Creator God. And look at what we find here. That peace is found through trusting in Jesus. If you look at verse 6, it speaks right into our pluralistic age. You see, we're often asked today how Jesus relates to religious figures such as Buddha, Muhammad, and Krishna. And we're asked to make room for others alongside Christ. Listen to what Jesus says here, the Son of God. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And notice, he not only shows us the way to the Father, he is the way. And he doesn't only teach us truth, he is the truth. And he not only offers one avenue to life, he is the life. And so in a word, the human quest for God, it ends in Jesus. He stands unique, he stands alone, and he stands utterly supreme, the Son of God. And now we come to the reason why we can fully trust in Christ, and it's this. We look up. Christ is risen. And firstly, we find here a place that has been prepared. If you look at verse 2, it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. Over Easter, there was a play in Princess Street Gardens called the Easter Play. There was a play about the life of Christ. And it had five scenes. And it took us right up to the crucifixion. But notice something. It didn't end there. No, it finished in triumph. Why? Because Christ is risen. And Jesus Christ is alive tonight. Now, someone who looked at the evidence for the resurrection was a chap called Frank Morrison. And Frank is a lawyer. And that's okay. And he initially set out to write a book, it's true, to disprove what he called the fairy tale of the resurrection. But here's what happens. As he explored the historical evidence of the resurrection, okay, this atheist became a Christian. Think about that. And why did that happen? Because intellectually, he could not ignore the evidence that he found. I wrote a book, and it's called Who Moved the Stone? And he wrote this about the empty tomb. Here's what he wrote about the empty tomb of Christ. So all his research. 
in all the fragments and echoes of this far off controversy which have come down to us, we are nowhere told that any responsible person asserted that the body of Jesus was still in the tomb. We are only given reasons why it was not there. And it continues. Listen to this. Can we find the face of this cumulative and mutually corroborative evidence? Personally, I do not think we can. The sequence of coincidences is too, is too strong. You see, it was just as the angel had said at the empty tomb. He is not here. He has risen. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And Christ is risen. Here at Charlotte Chapel, we sometimes sing an older song. I'm not going to sing it to you so you can relax. And it has these amazing words. That's a very cool laugh, by the way. And it says, Death cannot keep his prey. Jesus, my Saviour. He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave he arose, with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. And so, yes, he would leave his followers. And yes, he would die a cruel and a lonely death on a cross. However, he says, look, his death will not be the end. He will return to his father's house. He is going back to heaven. And there, he will prepare a place. Who for? For those who trust in him. Bruce Milne is a pastor in Vancouver, Canada. And he writes this in his commentary on John's Gospel about this place that is prepared. He says, This great blessing, the assurance of eternal life with Jesus in his heavenly home, is possible only because Jesus goes away from us through his cross, resurrection and ascension. And now secondly, this place is a place that has many rooms. Now the word room here is, linked, is a place of residence. It's a place with your name on it. And here's what it means for a Christian. Heaven is awaiting your arrival. Now when I left school, I had an ambition in life. My ambition was to go backpacking to Southeast Asia. So here was my itinerary. I started off in Bangkok in Thailand. I went up to Chiang Mai in, uh, up north in northern Thailand then through Malaysia, and then down into Singapore. And it, was great and it was great fun. But the thing is this. When you go packpacking, you tend to smell. You do. It's true. You stay in youth hostels, and you don't wash very much. And it might sound absolutely wonderful. But here's what I thought. I thought I would treat myself to a nice, clean hotel room when I arrived in Singapore. It was the YMCA building. It was tremendous. And get this. That hotel had a McDonald's restaurant downstairs. I know. And I have never eaten so many hamburgers in all my life. You see, that room and that hotel had my name on it. Now, look what Jesus says here. In a far, far greater way. He says, If you have put your trust in me, 
then there is a place in heaven with your name on it. And he says here, in heaven there are many rooms. So what does that mean? It means there is space for everyone who trusts in Christ, even the unlikely. Don Carson, a biblical scholar in Chicago, I know it's very warm, everyone's sweltering there, writes, the point is not the lavishness of each apartment, but the fact that such ample provision has been made, that there is more than enough space for everyone of Jesus' disciples to join him in his Father's home. And so in being ready for the second coming of Christ, we look back. Christ has died. And we look up. Christ is risen. And finally, we look forward. Christ will come again. There is a day coming. And that day will transcend all other events in space and time. Jesus Christ, Son of God, is coming back. And verse 3, if you look down, Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Last Sunday, we remembered with thankfulness the end of the Second World War. And it was 60 years ago this year that the war ended. Now, back in May 1942, the American and Filipino troops had to surrender the Philippines. But here's what General Douglas MacArthur did, the commander of the Allied forces in the Pacific. He promised to retake the islands. And he had the words, I will return, printed on thousands of leaflets. And they were scattered all over the country. And towards the end of 1944, General MacArthur kept his promise. And by July 1945, the country was liberated. And a month later, the war was finally over. Now, in the same way, Jesus will keep his promise to return. And why? Because God has set a day when he will judge the world. Hebrews chapter 9 speaks about this coming day of judgment. And it says, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time. Listen to this. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. One of my favourite authors is C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was a brilliant professor at both Oxford and Cambridge universities. And he was someone else who looked intellectually at the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And so he put his trust in Christ. And C.S. Lewis wrote this about that final day of judgment. This is what he says. Quite graphic. When that happens, it's the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play's over. For this, for this time, it will be something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. And that day is coming. It will be a dramatic climax to history 
as we know it. We get a picture of that day in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And it says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That return will be physical, personal, visible, triumphant, but also, and get this, it will be unexpected. And so can I ask you a question? A direct question. Do you look forward to that coming day? Or do you fear it? For you see, a Christian can. Why? Because they have a wonderful assurance. And it's this. They will be with Christ. Forever. Now, back in Singapore, I really enjoyed staying in that hotel room in the YMCA building. But the next day, I had to leave. Why? Because I was very poor. I couldn't afford to stay any longer. Now, heaven is not like that. If you look at verse 2, the word rooms here is linked to the word remain. We find in John chapter 15 and verse 4, where it says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. And here's what it means if you're a Christian. It's this. You will remain with Christ forever. You will never have to vacate heaven. It's where you will be forever. And when we embrace that, it will change our whole perspective on life. For example, if you ever go up to King Arthur's seat, you'll get a brilliant vantage point of the city of Edinburgh, so I've been told. And you'll see all different sites, like the castle, Princess Street, and Scott Monument. And you'll see them all in perspective. And now here's the point. When we have this eternal vantage point of being with Christ in heaven, we'll see everything in the rightful perspective. We'll see our homes, our cars, our caravans, you've got a caravan, all these things differently. Why? Because they're only temporary. You see, what really matters for a Christian is this. You'll be with Christ forever. Near the end of his life, the Apostle Paul could write to one of his companions, a man called Timothy. And here's what he could say at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And that is the goal for every Christian. And that is the Christ. And nothing even comes close. So in conclusion, we have looked tonight at the event that will end world history as we know it. Jesus Christ is coming back. And we've looked at how we can be ready for that coming day. By trusting in Christ. We look back. Christ has died. And we look up. Christ is risen. And we look forward. Christ will come again. Someone who is ready for that day was a man called Anthony Ashley Cooper. And he was also known as Lord Shaftesbury. Now, Lord Shaftesbury entered Parliament in 1826 at the age of only 25. 
and there he worked tirelessly to help the weak of society the chimney sweeps, flower girls, orphans, prostitutes, prisoners, disabled people and crippled children and why? what was his, what was his incentive? well he tells us towards the end of his life here's what he said it's incredible I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thoughts of our Lord's return. His favourite text was the second last verse of the Bible. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And on his deathbed, he kept muttering these words. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. So here's a challenge for us. And it's this. Can you say tonight with full assurance Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.